I want to begin this morning by asking you uh, to imagine that you're all steak lovers. Uh, I know some of you are, but I know some of you aren't. But for this exercise, imagine that you are a steak lover and imagine that you're going to celebrate a special occasion whether it be your birthday or an anniversary or a friend's birthday, and you are going to go to the best steakhouse imaginable. Maybe it's maybe you prefer Fleming's, maybe it's Ruth Chris uh, here in Omaha, maybe it's Mahogany Prime. It's the big night. You've been saving up for it maybe, and you're going to go celebrate and enjoy an awesome, amazing steak. Let's make it Mahogany Prime because they have a 14-ounce bone-in filet for $58.99 a la carte. My mouth is watering. Can't wait. So you pull into the parking lot at Mahogany Prime. You have to park some distance away. And as you're walking to the entrance... Imagine an old RV sort of cutting you off, maybe an 82 RV. Uh, as it cuts you off, it's, the engine is running and the, the, the exhaust is belching out smoke. It's, it's a real piece of work. And the guy comes fumbling out, intercepting you. Uh, his name is Guido or Vinny or Louie or something like that. And when he's not looking at your jewelry or your watch, uh, he's trying to convince you that what he has in his RV is far superior and at a much lesser price than that fifty-eight ninety-nine bone-in fillet at Mahogany. Are you going to get in that RV with him? Of course you're not going to get in that RV with him. Of course you're not. It's a no-brainer. And that's why I bring it up as a story. It's a no-brainer you're not going to do that because you're not gullible. Or at least none of us here are that gullible. But I'm going to use that as a spiritual illustration because many people, even professing Christians, are very, very gullible. He's the Vinnie Guido Louis guy. Oh, my, 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 my food will satisfy you. It'll, it'll, it'll meet your needs. It'll even be better. Then you say, yeah, right. I'm going in where they have the good stuff. They have a reputation. They're proven. But in the spiritual realm, oftentimes, even professing Christians... Oh yes, Jesus lived, died, rose again from the dead. And if I trust in Him, I'm guaranteed eternal life and I'm guaranteed resurrected life and I'm guaranteed a right relationship with God. And yet we listen to all these guidos. We listen to all these false teachers who say, Yeah, but I've got something better. But it's not actually going to satisfy you. What you really need is what I have. And the Bible says in 1 John, which is a corrective to Guido kind of thinking, to gullibility, there are many false prophets. This is a problem. This is a problem that we face. This is a problem that we engage. This is something that people I know and love and care for are duped by. 
And what they need to know, and what 1 John helps us to see is, if you have Christ, if you have Christ, if you're trusting in the one true Christ, all of your spiritual needs have been met perfectly. And nothing could satisfy the way Christ satisfies. Nothing could bring you joy, true, genuine, lasting joy, the way Christ gives it to you and brings it to you. And that's what 1 John is seeking to do. So this morning what we'll do, we'll be in chapter 2. 1 John is a short little letter at the end of the Bible. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And what happens in this book that helps us to have assurance and joy and security because Christ is sufficient and everyone who's trying to give you something else is trying to give you something lesser, not greater, even though they're proclaiming to give you something greater, shouldn't be listened to. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, and it comes in two parts. So really, I'm going to follow a two-part outline today. The opening verses give us affirmation, okay? If you have Christ, you have everything you would ever need. It's awesome affirmation. It's meant to give you joy. It's meant to give you assurance. It's meant to remind you of your security. And boy, he lays it on. It's awesome. It's meant to make you feel good. And I don't mean feel good about yourself. It's meant to make you feel good in an ultimate sense because if you have Christ, you have everything. And then, in the later verses, in 12 to 17, he calls us to live a certain way. But it is strategic. This is how the Bible lays itself out again and again and again. Because you have Christ, now live a certain way. Right? If it was just live a certain way and then you'll gain Christ, none of us would ever gain Christ. But it's always the other way around. Now that you have all that you would ever possibly need and you're secure, now live a certain way. It's awesome. It's really a great text. I don't know if we'll get done today or not. I'm all wound up and who knows. But that's my goal to get us done with this. But I want to begin by by not... I, I don't want to cheat you. I want you to enjoy the... The, the, the goodness of what we have in Christ in this opening affirmation. So verses 12 to 14, affirmation. And he's going to uh, use a metaphor. He's going to talk about Christians as children. He's going to talk about Christians as uh, fathers. And he's going to talk about Christians as young men. And all of you ladies, don't feel slighted. Uh, it's just metaphor. It's, it's, it's inclusive. Um, Just like I wouldn't want the men to feel slighted if we were in 2 John and we were referred to as the elect lady, okay? So, uh, and that would be including the elect lady and her children. That would include men. It's a metaphor. And here we have a metaphor for all Christians, children, fathers, young men. It's just talking about us at all different stages of our Christian experience and, and, and of our lives, okay? Is that, if I, if I met your PC needs this morning? I don't know if I like being called the elect lady, but that'll be Second John. Affirmation. Here we go. Beginning in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. 
I am writing, John's an apostle, so he was with Jesus, so he, he knows what he's talking about with the authority of Jesus, and I'm writing to you children. Does he say little children yet? Yeah, little children. And he uses children throughout the whole letter of John, uh, of 1 John for Christians. I'm writing to you little children, I'm writing to you Christians. But even at the beginning of your Christian experience, this is true of you. Because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. And we could just enjoy that today. If you are a Christian, your sins are forgiven for His namesake. Doesn't sound like much unless you're actually thinking. Your sins, your violations against God's standard. God's standard that says love God purely, truly, genuinely, authentically with all of your heart because He's the one true and living God and love those around you like you would love yourself. None of us do that, so we've sinned, we've violated God's standards, so we're guilty. And He says your sins, your violations against God's standard are forgiven. And we know, because we've learned earlier in 1 John, the reason we're forgiven, so, so it, that, there, that our guiltiness is erased, is because of what, of what Jesus has done. He's an atoning sacrifice. In chapter 2, we learned about that. And atonement brings forgiveness. So because of what Jesus has done, your sins are forgiven. For His name's sake. Name is meaningful. Because of who He truly, genuinely is. Because of Jesus, you're forgiven. This is This is great, grand, wonderful Christianity. Think about this in the context of false teachers who want to say, you got to know more stuff. you got to do more things. Trying to persuade you that Jesus isn't enough. And John says, okay, children, even at the most basic level, not adults, not the more mature, not the ones who have to do a lot of stuff, no, children, your sins are forgiven. It's awesome. It's great. It should make you feel good if you're a Christian. And when somebody tries to tell you, yeah, but you have to have this experience, or you have to do this, or you have to go here, or you have to go there, you should say, no. I don't need to go there to feel good. I feel great. God has accepted me. He's not against me. He should be against me because I have sin. And He's not because of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. That's good. It's in Him. United to Him by faith. Ordinary Christianity, for children even, is where it's at. And by the way, there's no such thing as extraordinary Christianity. <laughs> it's the real deal. There's nothing greater than having your sins forgiven and being accepted by God. Let's keep moving. Uh, oh, by the way, some... Uh, so he's going he's gonna to do children, fathers, young men. And he's going to repeat the address of, of the three. And, and some Bible teachers who are great Bible teachers say uh, that just shows that uh, first you're a child uh, and then you become a young man and then you become a father. Um, it, that might be the, that's how I originally was taught it. It might be the case. The point being, regardless of where you are in your Christian experience, you have what you need. Even the children have what they need. 
So there's lots of overlap. I'm going to err if I'm erring this morning on the side of, in, in a sense, if you have Christ, you have everything, whether you're a child, young, or old, you have what you need in Christ. I think that's the overall gist. Uh, the kind of the sermon spoiler that says you start off as a child, then you go to the young uh, uh, young person and, and, and mature, and then you're most mature. The sermon spoiler there is in First John, he refers to all Christians, regardless of age, as children. So it makes it more complicated. Um, but what's not complicated is the overall message. Even if you're only a child, if you're trusting in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, and so it's all good especially in light of the false teachers who are trying to ask you to do something extra to get your sins forgiven. So if your favorite Bible teacher um, sees it a different way, awesome. Um, But the overall gist we can agree to. Verse 13 says, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Knowing, it's using knowing in a relational sense. You, you, you know him who is from the beginning. He's no doubt referring to Jesus. Does he refer to Jesus at the beginning of his earthly ministry? Sure, but I can't help but think about First John chapter 1. Jesus is in the beginning with the Father. He's the eternal one. If you're believing in Jesus, you know him who is from the beginning. You know the eternal one. You know the one who spoke things into being. You can have your Vinny theology all day. You can have it, it's a bunch of garbage. I know, if I'm a Christian, the one who was from the beginning. Don't tell me I need to know this other stuff. This other stuff you're telling me I need to know wouldn't satisfy me because I have what's ultimate if I'm an ordinary Christian. To know Jesus, God's unique Son. Again, oftentimes false teachers, whether they talk this way or they don't talk this way, it's always, excuse me, it's about knowing things. Oh, if you knew what I knew. If you knew what, how does that go? If you only knew what I know. Oh, yeah, we know the eternal one if we're Christians. That's what you need to know. Not some kind of sacred tradition, not something extra, not something hidden, not something new. This is the eternal which is relevant. I'll sneak in one Israel story. So when we were at the end of our stay last week in Jerusalem, uh, Greg, Greg Ginsler was talking to his dad in the lobby uh, and I won't get all the details right, but they were talking and they were talking about the gospel and they were talking about the work of Christ. And uh, someone came over, a young man came over to them and wanted to know if they were Christians. The young man's name was Yoni. Yoni was there for Shabbat because he's an Orthodox Jew with his Orthodox Jewish family. And so I know Greg talked to him. Greg's like the nicest person on the planet. Um, thank you, Cindy, for mentoring your husband. Um, we'll, we'll, get, we'll give her credit. And so they got to talk to him, and Yoni, Yoni is a secret Christian. He's come to believe in Jesus as Messiah. But he wants to be on his own before he tells his family, before they kick him out. And so we got to meet him and talk to him a little bit. 
And then the next day, Greg texts me and said, can you, can you come down to the lobby? And I didn't know what was going on. Came down to the lobby. And there's Yoni again, because he and Greg had been emailing back and forth. And Yoni wanted some more Christian fellowship. So he took like a train and a bus and who knows whatever else, an hour of travel to get back to the hotel to hang out with Greg again, the nicest guy in the world. Um, fellowship. But it was interesting. Here's where I'm going with the story. Talking to him, I, I wanted to know about um, oral tradition and laws and uh, things like why is it that Jews, uh, if they have a kosher kitchen, uh, they say, why, why don't they have meat and dairy at the same time? And where does that come from in the Bible? Uh, and, and I know where it comes from, but it's not actually in the verses they use. And they have to wait six hours in between time, even though the Bible doesn't teach this. And he talked about oral law, oral tradition. Yeah, but where is that in the Bible? Because the Bible doesn't teach anything like that. Well, it's what the rabbis taught. And then this rabbi teaches, this rabbi teaches, this rabbi teaches, this raspberry (laughs) teaches. The point being, he talked about just how much bondage it creates. Because you've got to know the secret and this special teaching that's not in the Bible. But you know, we know these things because tradition is good and we have insights and God told me and God told so and so and now I'm telling you and it's legalism, 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 oppression, oppression, oppression. And only Christ can take that away. And here's this young believing person. You can pray for Yoni. So happy to have Christian fellowship and share with others who know God through Jesus and have been freed from false teaching. Think about it. If you know God, what else do you need to know? You're set free. It's almost like it's too good to be true. You know Him who is from the beginning. It's absolutely Amazing. By the way, this is, this is New Covenant talk. I won't get into this in great detail. This is Jeremiah 31 talk. You're going to know God uniquely. Sins forgiven permanently. And if you're a child of the New Covenant, you, you don't need Guido stuff. And it's all Guido stuff. Let's move on. He's still meant to, he's still building us up and affirming us. Verse 13. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You have nikaoed the evil one. At least for my kids and maybe other kids who love Nikes, you have Nikeed the evil one. You're victorious. You're the conqueror. You're the victor. Yeah. If you've believed in Jesus, yeah, but, but, but I haven't really done anything. That's right. If you trusted in Jesus, you have overcome Satan. You are victorious. Isn't it ironic how so much false teaching is all about Satan and binding Satan and doing all this stuff and learning these secret kind of prayers and things and only through us can you do this kind of stuff? No, if you are a believer in Jesus, you've, you've, you've conquered Satan. Why? How? How could that be? I've not conquered Satan if I'm wearing Nikes or not. 
in Christ, if you're united to Christ, remember Jesus is the one who overcame temptation. How about 1 John chapter 3 verse 8? Jesus came here to destroy the works of the devil. And if you're trusting in Him, you're united to Him. You have Christ and all of His benefits. I like Romans chapter 16, which is still putting this in the future, but it's sure because we're in Christ. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's as sure as done. We're just waiting for it to become actualized. Yeah! That's what Adam should have done in the garden, and he didn't do it. But we're united to the last Adam. Smash his head. You have overcome the evil one. Wow. Verse 13 goes on to say, I write to you children because you know the Father. Now we're back to where we started. But he's overlapping. You know the Father. You know God. You can call Him Abba Father. Every need you would ever have spiritually will be met. Romans 8.31 If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? Let's keep going in verse 14. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That's a repeat. But if anything's worth repeating, it's that. Think about it. I mean, I don't know what other people are doing in church this morning. I hope great things. I hope pastors are preaching about Jesus. And I don't really know what you're looking for in a church, at least some of you. But I am here to tell you that if you are a Christian... You know Him who is from the beginning. Where else are you going to go other than a Bible teaching church that preaches Christ? You're going to hear that. If you are a Christian, you know God. You might not feel like you know God when you're flying, you know, economy class. Or you're driving a, I don't know, I don't want to pick on anybody's car. A Yugo, they don't make those anymore. Maybe that's a cool thing now, I don't know. There are a lot of times I don't feel like I know God, right? When you're standing in line arguing with somebody over something and you got bad customer service or whatever, you want to say, yeah, I know God. Who do you think you are? I know God. But the, the spiritual reality is, If you are a Christian, you know God. And by the way, that really is, whether we'll admit it or not, what we're all looking for. And I'm here to tell you today, based upon the authority of God's Word, if you are a Christian, you know God. Relational. I want to use the word intimacy, but I don't mean in a sexual way. As in daddy as in every need would be met. The boy, the Louis and Guidos and Vinnies. They think you're a sucker. And they think you're going to believe them when you, 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 you have to have something extra something more 
don't be a sucker. Sometimes I think popular Christianity today should be called fattyanity. It's just one fad after another, after another, after another, after another. Don't be like that. Be a stable, ordinary Christian who can help other ordinary Christians know that if you have trusted in Jesus, you know God. Him who was from the beginning, 14 says. Worth repeating. Okay, let's go to verse 14 where it goes on to say, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the Word of God abides in you. So it's pretty similar, but strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. We already saw that part, but notice the connection now. The new part is the Word of God abides in you. It continues in you. It dwells in you. The Word of God could be used for written revelation, and it is, the Bible. The Word of God is also used for, because it's a word for revelation, the revelation of God, which would be Christ. In other words, what makes you strong? What makes you strong spiritually, you could say, is the Word of God, yes. But really, what he's getting at, more simply, what makes you strong spiritually is the gospel if you know the truth about the, uh, about the gospel, that Jesus was born, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary atoning death, was raised victorious from the dead, and that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life, if you know this to be true, and you're trusting in that great, grand reality, that's what makes you strong. But too often we think, you know, I, I know all that. But you know what I really need is some victory in my life. And I really need to be strong. I really need that something extra. What you really need is to have that reality, gospel reality, to dwell in your heart. To own it, to know it, to meditate on it, to live and pray and breathe and exist in light of that. And you're strong. How ironic that so many false teachers claim to be the strong ones that you need. And at least half the time, they don't even know what the gospel is. And it's intimidating, I know. I'm not always in preaching mode in my regular life, and I get intimidated talk to these people who talk about all these crazy stories and all these things and all of these experiences and all of this stuff and it's like, whoa, what? what? And what I need to remember and what you need to remember is the strength is actually in the truth about Jesus. You know, it's kind of like kid stuff. Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. It's not exactly the gospel, but you get the idea for shorthand. The next time you're intimidated by some charismatic person who had this charismatic experience or this person who has a special priest to forgive their sins or this person who God supposedly talks to and they love Jesus calling because you know the Bible's not enough so you have to have Jesus talk to you or whatever it is and you're feeling intimidated, I want you to think, Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so. You're the strong one. 
strength is in the gospel. Joy comes from this. It's no wonder that John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, that he's doing all of these things and writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. False teachers steal your joy. He's writing this stuff so we won't have our joy stolen. Okay, let's transition now. By now, you should be feeling good about yourself. Now, if I just name some people that you like, you might not be feeling good about yourself. You might be not feeling good about me. I don't know. But what's intended is that you feel good now. That you're resting in Christ. Oh, yes. I have what I need. I have what I need because Jesus' work is done. I can face anything. I know God. And now, and only now, he's going to say, Pat, I need you to do something. I need you to act like a Christian. Amidst the turmoil and the difficulty in a fallen, broken world, because Jesus hasn't come back yet, I need you to act a certain way. For your good and for the good of others. And if you're a Christian... You can put your name in the blank. You need to now live a certain way. But it's almost like he he gave us a running start. We're going to do something hard. And if you're going to do something hard, sometimes you you need a running start to do that hard. And so you've gotten this running start that's gospel, 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 gospel. Sufficient, 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 sufficient. You don't need anything else. Everything's been taken care of. And now I'm going to ask you to do something as a Christian. And so here we go. Exhortation, verses 15, 16, and 17. 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. There's the main command. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. That's hard. Because we live in the world. Don't love the world. Don't love things in the world. I love it in context. He got us ready for something hard. Out of context, it's, you know, it can mean all kinds of crazy things. Uh, there was, usually what that ends up meaning is whatever Christians don't like at a certain time in Christian culture, they just put it in there. So at one point in time, even within, within my lifetime, that meant playing cards. Okay? And I kid you not. And we all kind of say that's pretty silly. Or it meant going to movies. I mean, if you tried to weasel your way in, you could say, I'm going to a film. And then maybe that's okay. And we all say, that's so dumb. Well, we tend to read into it, though, are things that we don't like because we know we're not supposed to do certain things and what we are not going to do are things we don't like. But I would suggest to you that we should just let it, let it kind of thunder. Do not love the world, the fallen, broken system of the world, but notice he says, nor the things in the world. That, that's a pretty tough one to get around. Because everything I see is in the world. Don't love the world, nor the things in the world. Now he's going to go on to kind of explain things. But for now, it, it, it's worth us just letting the, 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 the second hand click by. Because you're in Christ, if you are in Christ, united to Him by faith, don't love the world, nor the things in the world. I 
I know what he means. Because he's going to go on to explain how we're to love, uniquely love, extraordinarily love, exceptionally love, one and only one. And that would be God. So it could be cards that go on the list, could be films that go on the list, self is on the list, cars are on the list, buildings are on the list, relationships are on the list, even the greatest relationships are on the list. You name it, it's all on the list. Things in the world. Because nothing, 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 nothing should have priority of place, sophisticated people like to say. Nothing else should occupy that one unique position of God. That's what he's getting at. Oh, God has done all of this for you in Christ. Our opening verses. And because he's done all of these things for you, act like a human being. Act like a Christian. Love God. And only love God. As God should be loved. Again, I don't want to take away from it. God himself tells us that we're supposed to love our neighbor and we're supposed to love our spouse if we're married, all these, you know, relationships. But what he's getting at in our context, and I think you'll see it as we go on, don't love the world or the things in the world in the way that God and God alone should be loved. Priority, priority, priority. I think is what he's getting at. How about verse 15 where it goes on to say, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we're not supposed to love the world. And if we do love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Think about the latter part of that. The love of the Father is not in him. So grammatically, you can take it different ways. Well, if if I love the world in the way I'm supposed to be loving God, then God doesn't love me. Well, I could argue that that would be true, and you could argue that grammatically, and you could argue that theologically. But a lot of commentators actually go the other direction, and I'm going to introduce that way of thinking to you if you've never thought about it. If you love the world, the love of the Father by you is not in you. Think about it. If only one can occupy that central place. If something is there other than the one who is supposed to be there, it's it's fail. It's fail. There's a problem. Anybody can understand this. As, As one Bible teacher puts it, I mean, this is no different. Well, it's different. But we can at least understand the, the way of thinking when we, when we tell our kids, you know, not to fill up on whatever snacks before dinner. Because there's no room for the dinner. And again, I don't want to liken God to dinner, but I at least want you to be thinking in simple terms. If, if, if there's only room for one God, it can't be your stuff. It can't be you. It has to be God who alone is God. And this is normal. This is natural. Apart from sin. And it seems to be what he's getting at. I mean, this goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the basics of there only being one God. And if there's only one God, we should love Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves as an outpouring, but not in place of. 
Remember, at the end of this letter, he's going to say to believers, guard yourself from idols. Don't love the world, because if you love the world, the love of the Father by you is not in you. God and God alone. And again, that's what God's law requires, and we've broken that law, but now we've been reconciled in and through Christ, and now we're Christians, and now we have all that we need. And in light of that, he launches us into saying, now act like you're supposed to act. God has done all of this for you in Christ. You've you've been received by him. You know God. You've been forgiven. But now live the way you're supposed to live. God is central in everything. I like to say to the men at Theology for Breakfast, but I'll say it to all of you, it's it's difficult for us to love what we can't see. But what we can't see is more real than what we can see. Get your mind around that. God is invisible. God is a spirit. That's why Jesus said you have to worship Him in spirit and truth, chapter 4. And here we're supposed to love more than anything or anyone else what we can't see. And you say, I'm a visual learner. Well, you're not if you're a Christian. Time to get over it. That's called idolatry. We're called to love supremely the greatest reality anywhere beyond all else, and we can't see Him. Now, yes, it's true. Jesus has revealed him. He's interpreted him. But we have to realize that we're called to love God who we cannot see. And that is hard. I am prone toward loving things I can park in my garage. Right? Or people who put on makeup. Those things aren't bad, by the way. This is not a call to monasticism and becoming a monk. We are salt and light. We're called to live in the world. There's no question about that. But God and God alone is to be your supreme object of devotion. To use Paul uh, kind of terminology, he and he alone is to have your unique affections. I don't want to, again, I don't want to oversimplify this, but this is what everyone's called to do. And no one does it. And so we're forgiven in Christ. We're reconciled in Christ. We come to know God in and through Christ. And now that we have all of that great blessing by grace and only by grace, live the way you're supposed to live, the way everyone's supposed to live. And now we actually can by God's grace. We don't have to be idolaters. 16 says, are we in 16? I think we're in 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, that would be these these sinful desires that we have coming from our hearts and the desires of the eyes, what we can see, that we long for because it's beautiful or shiny or whatever it might be, and the pride of life, or the pride of possessions, it's sometimes translated, or, or, or the, it's actually the word for 
bios, life, biology. So it's, it's a good translation, um, the pride of life, but it could have to do with like your living, what you have, what you've achieved, what you've accomplished, what you possess. Those are the things we tend to love. Back to my garage joke. And the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Again, don't misunderstand. I'm not going to take a book about false teaching and become a false teacher. (laughs) He's not saying, if you really want to be a Christian, you can't have any stuff. Um, Actually, that would go against the tenor of the whole letter. But your priority needs to be right if you're a Christian. Those things don't deserve priority of place. Here's some more rationale. Here's why this is the right way to think. I know it's a hard way to think. It's the difficult way to live, but it's the right way. How about verse 17? And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Passing away, abiding forever. Doing the will of God? Well, the will of God is to be sane and to see God and God alone as God and God alone. (laughs) Otherwise, it's insanity. It's insanity for you to worship your stuff. It's insanity for me to worship my stuff. It just rusts. Sometimes I love driving down the street and seeing the first brand new car I bought. You know, 1987. And it's so rusted out, it hardly moves. I hardly ever see it. I like that. It's just a little reminder to me that the thing that I so adored and cared for is a piece of garbage. Passing away, lasting forever. Doing the will of God would be having God and God alone being priority of place because of the gospel, because of believing in Jesus. And if that's the reality in your life, you will, does it say abide or live? Abide forever. Same reality. It's it's pretty good. It's pretty helpful. Let's end on this. Remember that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that everything you do is to be done for the glory of God. So, buying a new car, going to the gym, making a great meal, training your children, loving your spouse, loving your neighbor, loving your enemies, enjoying a hobby, sewing. I mean, whatever it is, we can do, we, we can do anything and everything for the glory of God if it's not sin. But what becomes perversion is when those things occupy our affections in the way that God and God alone should occupy our affections. And when that happens, we're settling for something far less. The only thing that can ever bring true satisfaction and joy and happiness that will last forever is when you worship the one true living God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and that leads into eternity. I'm not the biggest C.S. Lewis fan in the world, but my very, very, very favorite C.S. Lewis quote regards this. 
our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. See, we think our desires are too strong. Oh, I, I, I can't help it. I, I so long for these things. And I like Lewis saying, you know, the problem is not that. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Don't be satisfied with these weak desires for playing in the slum because that's all you know. If anything, say, God, give me stronger desires that you and you alone can meet that transcends everything else. And by the way, you can have these if you're in Christ, according to His grace. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for the way that You've worked through the ages, through Your Word, through the power of the Spirit, even through Your church. Uh, May we be men and women and boys and girls today who find ourselves resting in Christ, and not only resting in Christ for all that He's done for us, but may we find ourselves um, satisfied with Him. May we find ourselves longing for an enjoyment of this relationship that we have with God through Jesus. May we not be satisfied with garbage. May we be satisfied with Christ and Christ alone. And as we celebrate this morning the Lord's Supper and we eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus, may it be a reminder to us of just how magnificent a Savior He is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.